Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Chillinois Podcast. I'm your host, Cole Preston, and in this episode, I sit down with Dr. Carla Gage. Dr. Gage is an assistant professor of weed science and plant biology at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. There's a link in the podcast description. If you click on that link, you can see the timestamps for this episode, watch the video version of this podcast, and check out any citations that we referenced during our show. Once again, there's a link in the podcast description for this specific episode of the Chillinois Podcast. If you click on it, you can see the timestamps, the video version of this podcast, any citations we've made, and more. You can support us by making a contribution of your choice at chillinois.net slash support. Please rate the Chillinois podcast positively on whichever platform that you're listening from and enjoy the episode. Hi, Dr. Carla Gage. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing very well. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for sitting down with me. Um, I'm really excited to be back uh, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Um, Really quick, right off the top, folks, if you're interested in learning more and, uh, you know, getting a good look at the Cannabis Science Center at SIU Carbondale. Just go to cannabiscenter.siu.edu to learn more. So Carla, uh, for folks uh, that are tuning in and may not be aware of who you are, can you give uh, yourself a little bit of an introduction? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm an associate professor of weed ecology here at SIU. Uh, So I study weeds agronomic weeds, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a big joke now because I also grow hemp. Yeah, so it's, I, of course, yeah, uh, that kind of weed too. But um, but I study agronomic weeds and their control in primarily corn and soybean crops. And we do a little bit of work in wheat and sorghum. And now, of course, we've added hemp to mm-hmm. our list of crops. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, um, that was, you know, a joke I had to try not to make. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at, so you were in the Canadogs newsletter, which I want to promote. If you go to cannabiscenter.siu.edu, the website I mentioned earlier, you can sign up for a free newsletter that uh, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale is doing. Um, it's the Canadogs newsletter. Yeah, I believe you're the Salukis, right? We so are. So that's the Canadog. Um, and I had to try so hard not to, I'm glad you led with it. Uh, <laughs> not making a joke about the fact that you're an assistant professor of weed science. Uh, it's just funny. It's hilarious. It's always been the running joke, right? Because <laughs> we have, uh, you know, we have shirts that say weed science, SIU weed science on them. Yeah. Is this, you gave me this shirt here. I, I got a folks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it is a great conversation starter. It always has been because it, it generates a lot of interest. And then I get to tell people about our research program. Yeah. But now when people make that joke, I get to tell them about the cannabis science center Mm -hmm. and all the work that we're doing with hemp. Yeah. So it's it's not just this lame pun anymore. It's not, it's taken on a whole new meaning. So it's really cool. And remind me, uh, when did that, when did this come into your like professional and academic life cannabis? Yeah. So, you know, the 2014 farm bill made it possible for universities to get licenses to study Mm -hmm. hemp. Um, so that was the first time that that prohibition on research had been lifted, you know, for any state that wanted to, um, you know, make that possible for their universities. So we applied, SIU applied in uh, 2018, and we received our license in 2018 to grow hemp. Um, and the, the first crop that we grew, it was just a small scale CBD crop just to get something started and to start growing some plants. 
So, um, so yeah, 2018 was our first year, uh, but very small scale. And then in 2019, we had our, we kind of ramped everything up. You know, we had a variety trial where we were looking at multiple cultivars of dual purpose hemp. And, uh, you know, that's a much different cropping system than CBD, you know, which is a specialty crop. So trying to move beyond specialty crops, you know, black plastic mulch with drip line and get into direct seeding hemp into the field for a row crop yeah. for the production of fiber and seed. I was about to ask the dual, what would you, what'd you say it was? Dual, dual purpose, dual purpose hemp. It's yeah. not like, uh, what people think of when they see a cannabis plant, uh, like with the big buds and everything else, it's like a tall, lanky, skinny plant. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. It's amazing that, um, you know, it's all the same species, Mm -hmm. but, uh, there are, depending on what commodity you're interested in growing, you know, there are all these different forms or morphologies that the plant takes. Yeah. So you think, you know, that, that CBD hemp plant looks just like a, a medical or recreational yeah, marijuana yeah. plant mm-hmm. um, or high THC cannabis. Uh, so, so those plants look the same, but then when you start uh, growing the plant for seed production, you plant it at a higher density, which means it doesn't branch as much mm-hmm. and it, uh, it grows, it's a shorter plant. Um, but it still puts a lot of energy in the stalk and, uh, and of course in, in the seed production, floral production. But then when you grow a plant for fiber, you're planting at an even higher density, but you're planting a cultivar that's been bred over time to grow really tall, mm-hmm. you know, and that's an unbranched plant with very few leaves on it by the end of the season, really. Yeah, I think it probably looks like something that we saw. Maybe I'll display pictures now for our audience that is that's watching the video version of the podcast. Uh, we went to the University of Illinois. Uh, Dr. Do Kyung Lee has his hemp fields down there. And like you say, that they're the CBD plants, which are grown and spaced apart. But then the dual purpose hemp is like really congested. Like I feel like I couldn't run through it if I wanted to. No, it's pretty thick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hemp is planted closer together. The row mm-hmm. spacing is much tighter on that. Yeah. And even more so for fiber. So, so yeah, it'd be difficult. Yeah, to and it's move like a wall. It. It's, it gets really tall. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And the taller it gets uh, from a research standpoint, the harder it is to collect data in the hemp, right? You can't hardly get into it to mm, yeah, take okay, measures follow, on the you know. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Well, um, you know, so. Before we get into the other things you study, because you, you're involved in many more plants than cannabis, uh, I do want to ask you about your relationship with cannabis. Like, have, have you always had a relationship with cannabis? Is it just that the farm bill happened and it's a new plant that you guys deal with? Like, what's your relationship been like with cannabis? Yeah, from a perspective, just with, uh, with it being a plant that's so heavily regulated I've, I've always, um, felt that that was not the proper place for that plant. Uh, so now that we have the capacity to work with it, um, you know, it's just such an exciting new crop and you would think that we would know so much about it already, but the, the things that are known are not based in science, right? So there's a lot of, um, a lot of knowledge, right? There are a lot of people that have grown the plant and know a lot about the plant, but when it comes to scientific publications in the scientific literature, you know, we are just now 
getting yeah. to the point that all of that's opened up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you give a few, I'm just curious, what are some examples from your perspective of where like some claims or some under, some of our understanding about cannabis that isn't grounded in science? Okay. Yeah. From a production standpoint, um, have you, are you familiar with the term super cropping? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you crack the stem for those right? that are, yeah. For those yeah. that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I, I can explain. So, um, you would, uh, you would take a, a plant that's still in the vegetative stage, uh, you know, high THC plant mm -hmm. and, uh, and you would twist the stem until you just hear a crack, right? So you're injuring the stem and you would do that all the way up the plant, uh, possibly the branches as well. And when you're done with that, the plant looks almost wilted, right? But within a couple of, you know, hours a day later, you know, it'll start to regain its growth and, and begin to grow upright and repair mm -hmm. the injury. Um, so it's a well-known um, phenomenon that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a small dose of poison makes you stronger. Like a little bit of stress yeah. can make any organism mm -hmm. grow better or fight disease better, you know. Um, upregulating the defense system sure. of that organism. So there are um, a lot of uh, very good producers that believe that increases the plant's capacity to produce yield. But from a plant perspective, knowing the, the classical ecological literature on um, that type of study, that's really difficult to uh, prove, right? If we ever really prove anything in science, sure, it's really difficult to show that there's a connection in increasing yield when you damage a plant. And that's called overcompensation. It happens with, you know, grazers like uh, deer that graze plants out in the wild. They may browse the top off of a plant mm -hmm. and then it may branch. And if it produces seeds on the ends of each of those branches, you would think, well, more branches, maybe more seeds. But, um, but some of the literature, some of the work that's been done um, has not really shown that. So that's something that I, I, would, I would like to know. Does super cropping, does damaging the stems of a cannabis plant actually increase yield? Mm -hmm. uh, same, you know, people trim their shade leaves when yeah. they produce. Um, there has to be a point at which you're taking away from the plant's ability to produce uh, carbohydrates and, mm -hmm. and actually grow, right? Yeah. You can remove some of those leaves and there's no consequence and it, it may allow the plant to redirect its energy where it's important. But and that's the, that's the logic that people place behind logic. it, right? It, exactly. The logic is if those leaves are shaded underneath the canopy, they're not really doing anything, right? They're, uh, they're requiring energy from the plant for cellular repair, mm -hmm. but they're not really giving back as much. People think like, well, the bottom, the bottom, uh, what you yield from the bottom of the plant is just these like smaller popcorn nugs. So why not just, it, it's again, the logic of like, let's just not even devote any energy to that. And hopefully it'll devote all its energy to the top. And are you saying yeah. there's maybe not so much uh, evidence to support that notion? Well, I actually don't know of any science behind it. It, sure. it makes sense logically yeah, to a point again, but what's the threshold? Mm -hmm. You know, what percentage of shade leaves can you remove and still see the same or, or do you see better yield? Yeah. And at what point does it become harmful to the plant? Like, like there comes a point where it's like, 
it's obviously there for some reason. Yeah. So like, are you, are you taking away from its maximum capacity? Cause you think of leaves as like solar panels. Exactly. So if you're taking away them, so it's like, yeah, I can see what you mean there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We do know, um, and I can't remember the percentage right now, but cannabis plants can withstand a, a large, a high percentage of, um, damage from herbivores, you know, things munching on their leaves mm -hmm. and still yield the same. So it might, it might be the same with that type of practice, removing the shade leaves, you know, maybe the plants do overcompensate. Yeah. The, the plant is really amazing in its plasticity. You know, when, when you, um, when you trim it or, um, you know, prune it or train it, it, it is amazing how quickly it recovers yeah. from all of that. It really is. Especially when you're growing in a hydroponic medium, like I've seen people prune, like, and then take a picture the next day and it's like full again, the canopy is yeah. full again. And it's just, it's crazy. That rate of growth. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's really amazing. So, yeah. uh, you know, from a weed science perspective, I was thinking this is, it's, it's a true weed, right? This yeah. is the perfect plant to study as a crop. Now did you said also, you felt like it was overly regulated. Was there, something in your life that made you feel that way? I mean, was it just as simple as you liked to enjoy cannabis and it was so regulated that you couldn't or like, uh, I don't remember if it was the last person I talked to or not, but they said that they had an experience where a, a cancer patient had eaten a brownie and they were just, when they saw that they were like, what are we doing type yeah. of thing? So I didn't yeah. know if that's the type of regulations you're referring to that Right. Kind of as, as a medicinal plant, right? Because I've always been into the study of ethnobotany and how people use plants. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a plant that has um, an ancient history of, of well, a co-evolution with humans, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we've shaped that plant just as much as it's shaped our culture. Yeah. So, um, you know, the fact that this was something that was domesticated to to be part of human society at one time and now is, uh, you know, classified as a schedule one substance, you mm -hmm. know, it, it didn't, it just doesn't seem to fit like what the plant is. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I'm happy to see the, the regulations, uh, lifting a bit, but even in our program, we still have a good number of regulations that we have to follow to stay compliant within the university mm -hmm. and then within the state laws. Yeah. So it's not like we can just go out and plant hemp wherever we want. Now we still have to have quite a bit of paperwork and documentation yeah. for what we're doing. And unlike the other crops you work with, uh, this is one of the only ones that depending on the variables, uh, you could be forced to throw it all out. Do you yes. know what I mean by that? Yes, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Um, so if it tests hot. Yeah. Right? If the Explain THC, that for folks. Yeah. So if the THC is over the 0.3% threshold yeah. by mass, um, then we have to destroy the crop just like any other grower. Right. We're mm -hmm. except for us, you know, we lose, we may lose a huge investment in our research, but we're not losing. It's not like the same as a farmer losing acres of their investment. So, yeah. but on a, on a smaller scale, you know, we are, uh, we would still have to destroy the crop, but we could take data very quickly before we destroyed it. So yeah. there's a good chance that, you know, we would be at flowering stage at that point. We could probably finish whatever study if, if we were in that case. Um, 
but so far, you know, yeah. so far we're okay. <laughs> yeah. I, that, it's just such a crazy thing to, to even think about. Like I joked with Buck that farming is by nature a gamble, but we're like upping the stakes. And I just wonder as a researcher, it's gotta be pretty frustrating. It, it is, um, right. Because, uh, we're also by working with this crop, such a new crop, we haven't had the time to see true cultivars being established. And, you know, this is, I'm, I'm not a plant breeder. Um, I have a lot of respect for plant breeders, but it takes multiple generations, you know, up to eight generations of, uh, cross breeding in order to get something that has what they call stable traits, mm -hmm. meaning that if you plant 200 seeds out in the field, they're all going to come up at roughly the same time. They're going to look like roughly the same. The way we have corn. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly like that. That's why corn fields are such uniform height all the way across the field. Right. Um, so with hemp though, you know, some of the first cultivars that we worked with, they would be a really small plant right next to an enormous plant. <laughs> and, you know, one would look like a Christmas tree and the yeah. other would be not so branched. And it was all from the same batch of seeds. And, um, you know, we could see that in our uh, phytochemistry testing too, you know, testing for can cannabinoids and terpenes. Yeah. Like it just seemed like sometimes the plants that we got weren't well bred. So that was our, that was some of our earlier research we used with uh, starting the plants from seed. Uh, for the studies that we're doing now on phytochemistry, we, uh, we do now uh, clone the plants that we need. Okay. That way we can control that uh, genetic piece, right? So we... You achieve we, some consistency. Yeah, yeah. So that helps a lot, you know, and given enough time and enough breeding, it's going to be the same, right? We'll see cultivars that are true cultivars that have stable traits. Yeah. Um, and there won't be quite that concern. And for folks that haven't listened to my podcast and listened to me ad nauseum talk about why we should use the word cultivar instead of strain... Could you, uh, <laughs> could you tell, tell me why? Sure. Yeah. When I, when I hear strain, I think, um, bacteria. Yeah. Right? Or the new strain of COVID. Yeah. Or oh. the or a virus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's not a term that's used with, uh, with plants so much. And, uh, and even the difference in cultivar and variety. Yes. Yes. Variety yep. is, uh, is a natural difference, right? So we see varieties of plants in, mm -hmm. in nature. Um, I mean, I will say whenever I talk about our research, looking at different cultivars in the field, I will often call that a variety trial just because that's kind of, that's a classic term yeah. that even still is used in agronomy, but it's not used correctly. So we should really call those cultivar trials mm -hmm. because a cultivar is something that you select, right? You select it for certain traits and you breed it within that population for those traits. Yeah. This is a weird, weird question, but I am fascinated by like, yeah, variety and cultivar. Is it that a variety can become a cultivar um, or are they just totally separate things? Yeah. So I guess from a very classic botany perspective, yeah. Um, when I see variety, that would be a, a population of a species that has uh, existed in maybe a remote geography, Right. So it's a, it's a population of the same species that's found everywhere else, 
but it hasn't had the chance to breed with the rest of its species, right? So it's adapted to whatever those local conditions are. Yeah. And because of that, and because there's not really been a lot of genetic exchange with other individuals outside, um, you know, it may have different traits. It may look different. It gotcha. may have different physiology. Well, and it's it's kind of back to the idea. It, this kind of gets us back to some of the myths within cannabis. Uh, you know, one of the big myths is that cannabis, you have indica, hybrid, and sativa. But it was interesting that like that is kind of rooted in some historical f- fact, if you will. Like it was the idea that cannabis indica was in uh, mountains. And so because it grew in a higher altitude, it had a different structure and everything else. But then sativa, since it grew in lower altitudes or so- something to that extent. Yeah. Of course, now it's been crossbred so much that wow. but it but I guess what I'm why I bring that up is would that be an example of a variety like back in the day when it was separate and in the mountains and it hadn't bred with other types of cannabis? Is that kind of the example of a variety that you're? Um, yeah. Or a subspecies. Subspecies. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it would be if you, if you still considered it all the same species again, Yeah, yeah. but it, you know, taxonomists are lumpers or splitters, right? You know, (laughs) so, um, what one person considers an entire species, you know, there's another person that's looking at the different traits and how, how the plants look differently. And they're trying to break it down on how the plants look. And the most conservative characteristic is always the floral traits. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever, if you're ever trying to identify a species of plant, yeah. The flowers for that species are always going to look the same and they're going to be roughly the same size. Okay. So you can take measures of the flowers and, and kind of go through a, a key and a dichotomous key and figure out what species you're dealing with. But, uh, but all the other traits, you know, leaf color, that's not a good indicator, mm-hmm. you know, leaf shape that all changes with the light levels that the plant's exposed to. Um, so it's really difficult to look at plants and figure out, um, you know, if they're truly, uh, if they're truly different. So, you know, bring in all the advances in molecular tools and, you know, we can really, um, map the relationships between plants now. Mm -hmm. And that's caused a whole shift in plant taxonomy, right? We're renaming species all the time and putting them in different categories. So it's difficult to keep up with, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the evolution of, um, the nomenclature for cannabis over time. And, and yeah, currently it's all considered cannabis sativa with, uh, with subspecies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about, I want to, I want to, I've got one really quick question about cannabis. want to talk about some other plants and then we'll get back to what we're doing here at the cannabis science center at SIU Carbondale. Um, I had a question about like, as a as a scientist and a, and a researcher, um, like, is it? F- I, I, so my question is about. We kind of already touched about it. It's about the idea that you could plant this seed, and then depending on the variables and how things shake out, it could be considered a different plant. Like, is that like? I just have to imagine that that is frustrating. Because it's what we've entered into is a legal distinction rather than like a, a conversation about taxonomy and what the 
species of the plant actually is, right? Do you get what I'm saying? I I do. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think it would be great if we could all (laughs) work on our nomenclature for this, right? Yeah. Because when I say cannabis and when we say cannabis science center, I'm thinking hemp because hemp is cannabis sativa. Exactly. It's all the same. So, um, so I include the work that I do in agricultural row crops within the cannabis science center. But if you say that to a state legislator, right? If you look at the Illinois law, when you see cannabis in the law, they're talking about high THC plants right. or over that 0.3% threshold. Yep. So, so that's a disconnect when I see cannabis to a member of, when I say cannabis to, the, to a member of the public, um, they may be automatically thinking high THC when I'm just thinking about the genus of right. the plant. Right. So, um, you know, you will also find the term uh, marijuana in some laws and some legal documents. Mm-hmm. Um, I was glad our state did not go with that. You know, they, um, they originally, you know, cannabis was used for, for hemp and high THC uh, plants when we were going through prohibition. Right. And then with the 2014 farm bill, when we began to differentiate between hemp and high THC cannabis, that's when they kept cannabis for high THC plants. Yep. And then they specified hemp for anything less than that 0.3%. Mm-hmm. So, so we're stuck with this, but at least we're not using uh, marijuana, which is actually a term with some racial uh, you know, yeah. connotations mm-hmm. historically. Yeah. So, um, so I'm not happy that uh, the genus of the plant that I study is now synonymous with a Schedule 1 drug. Yeah. But. Yeah. And, uh, like you say, it's all about our nomenclature and you're talking about genus species binomial nomenclature. Um, and that's, that's what this gets down to. And I always try to make that point. Uh, people might be, uh, at this point tired of me, like belaboring on that point, but it's like when you have somebody like uh, Mitch McConnell say, I support hemp, but I don't support its illicit cousin. It's like, as a farmer, as somebody from Kentucky, you should know that they're the same plant. I know that he's far removed from the fields and whatever, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, to make a, such an ignorant comment, um, just add it to the library for that guy. But anyways, um, <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to make it a Mitch McConnell roasting session, but it, it's the point of, yeah, this conversation. The reason I returned to that point is I just, it's, it's a weird area where science and politics have it's like the threads have crossed or the feeds have crossed I think is the saying and and the politicians are telling you like no this is what that is it's like no if you know what the genus is it is this plant like just because you wrote this in the law books doesn't make it different Right. And, you know, when when all the states first started out, they were regulating on Delta 9 THC, but THCA, <laughs> you know, right, you you yeah. put some heat on that plant biomass and mm-hmm. the that THC acid form converts to Delta 9. Yeah. So now, you know, it's where the the chemists and the legislators, uh, you know, there's a divide in understanding there. So. Mm-hmm. Now more of the laws are moving to total THC federal at the federal level, but yeah, but yeah. 
So, um, you know, I'm work, I'm looking here again, you're featured in the Canada dogs newsletter. And again, I want to get back to cannabis, but I wanted to talk about some of your other interests, which include the biology and ecology of weeds within managed and unmanaged systems, um, efficacy of new technologies and weed control, the effects of weed management on weed population dynamics and the composition of the weed community or weed shifts uh, to new dominant species, all that good stuff. One of the things I want to start with, it's something that I was told when I was in biology in high school by this amazing professor that I'll never forget. You know, you have those good teachers in life. And like, if I saw this, this guy today, I might feel uh, weirdly about this, but I'd give him a hug because I think about him, you know, and like he was truly a good professor. And one of the things he told me, um, that I've always thought about, and I was excited to talk to you about this. I'm not sure if you're reverse, you know, if you'd be able to give me an answer on this or not, but I thought maybe I'll just try. He was talking about the way that we farm and the way that he was talking about how actually like, you know, the medians that you see within the cornfields or bean fields oftentimes are like because only there because of regulations, like there are regulation regulations to have like a median, you know, like some grass, some prairie land, um, and that the farmers will plant as much as they can wall to wall. And what he was saying is that like, if we actually like kind of allowed a little bit of, uh, look, I'm kind of jumping, I'm taking a leap here, but, uh, allowed more ecology, in other words, like kind of mixed some of these plants, some plants up instead of wall to wall. So sorry if I'm like phrasing this roughly, but it, it, do you get the concept that I'm trying to paint? And is it overall true? I do. Well, so um, there's a lot to unpack. There. Sure. Uh, I'm glad I at least kind of communicated you, the concept. You did. No, I know I get it. And uh, and yeah, you're right. Um you know, often farmers with their herbicide applications will have to leave buffer distances away from the nearest trees or sensitive vegetation. They also need to leave, um, you know, if they if they have a waterway running through their field, they really do need to leave some grass on either side of it to filter what runs into the water. Um, and there are conservation programs for that in particular to uh, do enhancements in agricultural fields and to use other uh, sort of, you know, more sustainable practices like cover crops. And I know sustainable, that's a, that term has become meaningless. Yeah. So I have to be careful when I use it, but, um, you know, if we could increase the ecology in our fields, um, there would be less pressure on some of the, the practices that we currently use, right? We, um, for example, we only want to see one species in a field of soybeans, right? We, don't, we only want it to be soybeans. Um, any weeds that you see in that field, if, if that soybean crop is genetically modified to, uh, to withstand herbicide, right? If, uh, you know, if that grower is applying herbicides over the top of the soybean crop and there are still weeds in that field, they're likely to be herbicide resistant if they if they didn't respond to that application at all. So because we are using herbicides on such large acreages, we are decreasing diversity overall in the field. 
Uh, but we are selecting for certain dominant species that we can't control anymore with those herbicides. It's just like antibiotic resistance. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons that, um, uh, there are two reasons I, I really wanted to study hemp. One is because it really is a perfect weed. Um, it can adapt to whatever conditions that it's in, for you know, within reason. Um, and it can persist for a very long time, like the victory hemp from World War II era. Yeah. That's still found in central Illinois from those Absolutely. days. So, so it's an amazing plant as, as a weed or as a rural plant. But then if we could figure out how to um, be successful in the agronomic production of hemp, and if we could put that in rotation with our other major crops, anything that we do to diversify that production system sort of slows that evolution, that, that adaptation to things like herbicide, right? So I could use cover crops. I could plant, you know, a grass crop ahead of my soybeans to suppress those early weeds. Um, you know, I could, uh, you know, then plant my soybean crop and, you know, not rely on herbicides alone, maybe do some practices to manage the seed bank of the weeds so that I don't build up a seed bank. Then I go into corn the next year. Uh, then maybe I do another cover crop and I plant hemp. You know, we've now got three cash crops and at least two cover crops in that temporal rotation of three years. So it just becomes harder and harder for species to be dominant and uh, and evolve into problems. It's the same for insect, you know, insects and pathogens as well. So the more diversified our cropping system becomes, um, it's almost like the healthier it becomes. Uh, so we're in a in a problem with herbicide resistance because we've relied on herbicides only for so long. Because when you have you know so many acres to manage and you're a large farmer, you're limited as to you know, how much time you have to go out and manage the weeds. So herbicides are the, the um, easy, you know, uh, relatively low cost solution where you just have to do things according to the prescription. So, so yeah, um, it's all about diversity and, uh, and the ecology in our, um, in our, you know, in our crop monocultures is pretty dramatically reduced. The other, the other thing I think about is like, this is a, another big jump here, but our yards, like the monoculture of our yards, is that the correct word? Monoculture? Am I, like, it's like the idea that it's just, just the grass. And like, if there was a little bit of ecology going yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, it, and when I think monoculture, I do think one species, Okay, you know, often our yards, even though they look like it's all grass, you'll have. You'll have some interactions, right? You'll sure, have some sure. different species and other things happening there, um, depending on how you manage your lawn. But, but yeah, you know, lawns are, are high input areas. You know, you the amount of gasoline and labor to mow them, and then a lot of people do apply herbicides to manage. Mm -hmm. They don't want broadleafs in their grasses, you know, yeah. things like that. So, well, and am, am, am I correct to think that if you didn't do your yard in the traditional American way uh, that maybe the bugs wouldn't be so bad. Like, cause there's it's kind of a, the, the idea that there'd be an ecology of predator and prey within. Yeah. Yeah. There would be more things to eat those bugs. Right. Um, you know, maybe you'd have bats flying overhead and they can eat, you know, yeah. uh, 
almost their body weight in mosquitoes, I believe, um, every night. So you'd have other things that would be predators of the insects that you don't like to be there. But some of the predators maybe you don't like because people seem to have a problem when snakes move in, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, so there are certain fears that people have that, um, you know, there's a theory that it's a, it's an ancient human fear of, of tall grass systems where the predators lie in wait. Yeah. So everybody likes short grass. Um, but you know, having a lawn, a lawn can be purposeful, right? If you have a lawned area directly around your house where you're going to walk and you're going to move around, you know, it does make it easier to, to move about the, the space. Right. But then, um, you know, maybe don't plant so many introduced species, invasive species as your hedgerows and ornamental plants, you know, um, go with some native landscaping. And a lot of times people don't like native landscaping because it takes a couple of years to start to look pretty. Right. And then it can look kind of wild and unkempt if you're into the traditional garden type, you know, where everything's trimmed and neat and tidy. So it's just a different aesthetic, I think. One more leap here. Um, it's weird how these thoughts connect, but they do for me. Um, you know, we've jumped from the idea of introducing more, and I feel like I'm being rough with my words right now, but the idea of introducing more ecology into like agriculture, just the fields. One of the comments that he made, by the way, is not only that you would maybe have like, yeah, less to deal with, with regard to pests and everything else, but he said the yield may be in some cases better because of the fact that it was like more natural, if that makes any sense. But, um, well, that's cause that's the thing people like plant from wall to wall. It's the idea that we got to get the most out of my real estate, you know? And yeah. that, when he said that it kind of flipped that on its head for me. So, um, yeah, sometimes those systems, when you add ecological complexity, yeah, you can get unanticipated interactions um, you can see species that have impacts that you wouldn't have expected because you've introduced new things or you've allowed things to be there. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's always the case that you could get higher yields, but one thing about these diversified cropping systems is that they usually um, also build carbon in the soil. And that holds your nutrients, that holds your water for longer. Um, so you can make it through drought periods as a farmer, you know, you, um, after several years, you know, you may be able to apply, apply a little less fertility, you know, depending on, uh, what crop you're growing, but, um, but you see benefits anyway, the soil structure gets better. Your soil microbiology is more diverse, things like that. And then you see that, um, you know, all the way up the, yeah the interactions there. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, as far as that translating always into higher yield though, um, it's sometimes it can be kind of up and down. Right. But, um, but I guess you could say that with a typical monoculture cropping system too, you know, if you go through drought one year and your soils aren't healthy, you know, your crop is going to be less likely to survive that drought. Mm-hmm. So, so not always is my answer, but, um, if you think about, what some weed competition can do. And as, as farmers, as producers, we don't want to see weed competition because that is directly taking away from that yield at the end of the season. But 
Um, in some cases, like um, you know, tomatoes, for example, a little bit of competition with a tomato plant uh, can actually increase some of those um, plant secondary compounds. Those are the, the like the terpenes in mm. cannabis. To get back okay. to that, the things that make up the the taste and the smell, right? Mm -hmm. So um, some of those interactions, some of the ways that you can stress plants can make them more appealing to humans. Gotcha. And that's one of the things we were looking at with cannabis to go back to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, one of our first studies, we had done a weed competition study with CBD hemp and we put up to five weeds, water hemp plants, which is a really competitive weed in all of our cropping systems across the Midwest. So we planted five of these plants directly around one CBD hemp plant thinking that we would see a, a reduction in yield and mm -hmm. a change in phytochemistry, you know, a change in the terpene profile, um, maybe a change in cannabinoids as well. Sure. Um, so we just wanted to see what that would do. And it didn't do anything. Like even the highest levels of competition, there was no change in yield or phytochemistry that we could detect in those plants. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I would think that, you know, like herbivory, for example, if something is eating a hemp plant, Plants naturally upregulate their defense mechanisms and they would produce more trichomes with, um, you know, terpenes and essential oils in them that would help them deter insects. That's what you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. But you're saying you didn't see that in that particular experience, uh, that experiment. No, we didn't in that particular experiment. Uh, we're, we're trying to investigate some insect interactions now. Mm -hmm. to see if there is an herbivory response in trichome count and, you know, phytochemical profile. But, um, but yeah, we're, we're, I don't know. We've seen some unusual things so far. Uh, I don't have data and I don't really understand what's going on just yet, but um, it seems like hemp may, again, not follow our traditional expectations in that sense. Very interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. So I guess my final thought on, on our little tangent that, um, that we're on with, with this stuff, it's like, I feel like people don't, I know that it's may you could, people could argue that it's not as bad as it was, but like the whole silent spring, am I thinking of the right thing where it's like, you know, yeah. Rachel Carson's classic book that launched the environmental movement. Yeah. 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 And I just like, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I see like crop dusting all the time and I'm just, I feel like we're foolish to think that like, like, yeah, it's totally fine. Like that's not at all, nothing you need to worry about. Yeah. Um, there are regulations in place that are supposed to ensure that everything is done safely. Yeah. Um, but sometimes when we put herbicides in particular down, they, they don't stay where we put them. Yeah. So you know, that happens and we do see, um, you know, landscape level effects sometimes, it, you know, impact to the vegetation around agricultural fields. Mm -hmm. um, that's another thing that, um, you know, I'm kind of curious about. We have feral hemp in central Illinois that's been exposed to all kinds of yeah. agricultural chemicals now. So, um, you know, what's the, what's the status of that impact and is it a little bit more tolerant to those chemicals because it's been exposed for so long? <laughs> yeah. You know, those are the, the kind of things that I'm wondering. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the stuff you're doing here at, uh, SIU Carbondale with, with the cannabis science center. 
um, t- tell me. I mean, you mentioned a few different exper- experiments that you have going, but I'm just interested. And I'm sure a lot of people that are tuning in, prospective students, whatever the case may be, uh, may be interested in some of the things that they'd uh, get into with you. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have some really great collaborators here at SIU. Um, so we're just kind of beginning to, we're still building the research program, I should say. Uh, so, you know, um, one of the things that uh, we've done so many studies now, it, it, it's hard to figure out what to talk about first, but uh, one of the one of the problems that we've seen, at least, uh, when we direct seed hemp in the spring, um, if we seed it too early in southern Illinois, we'll get strong. Okay, we'll get uh, like strong flushes of of rainfall, right? Like high precipitation events, where we get an inch or two of rain, and then our soils are actually pretty heavy. So hemp likes a well drained soil. So if uh, if we have young plants that are still trying to establish and we get a high moisture event, then a lot of times we lose that stand. So we're still trying to figure out how to miss those uh, precipitation events uh, because I don't think we're going to get around our soil type. Our soil type's just going to be kind of heavy. Uh, we do have... Kind of like holds water? Yeah, it stuff. does. It's uh, it's less organic matter and sand, right? But it's uh, it's a lot higher in uh, silt and clay. So, And the clay component is especially bad, right? Because that holds water. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have heavy soils. So some of the, the research that we hope to be doing with students in the future um, are just really basic tests looking at different soil types and emergence rates with different hemp. Uh, cultivars, and uh, and we have some ideas about how to take that further as well to see if there are some things that we can do, like some uh, some additives, some things that we can do to the seed that maybe will um, help the seed germinate and establish better. With the idea being that if the plant is large enough, then maybe it would withstand a little bit more of that moisture. So, uh, so yeah, there are a number of undergrads that are undergraduate students that are going to come in this next semester. Um, we try to find places for as many of them as possible if they want to do research um, or if they just want to be involved. You know, uh, our graduate students often need help with their own studies. Um, and, you know, I often need help in the field with the things that I'm doing. So, um, so yeah, we try to get as much practical experience for the students as we can uh, with the resources we have. Very cool. Very cool. Um, what has been, what's the reception been like? Uh, critics, uh, people that love it. Uh, have you seen like increased interest? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I guess if there are a lot of critics, they just haven't. Not very vocal or not to me. Yeah. And I don't, you know, generally speaking, critics of cannabis are are the the loud bunch. And so if you're not hearing them, I'm just trying to be optimistic. Maybe (laughs) there's not a lot of critics. Yeah. You know, um, I don't tend to read the comments sections on news articles and things like that. So that's probably where I'd find those critics. (laughs) Yeah, sure. But, uh, but no, I think, um, you know, what we're trying to do for the state of Illinois is really positive, you know, a new row crop with new uh, potential for farmers, you know, assuming that we can get markets established, right? That's 
right now there's no point in farmers growing a fiber row crop because there are so few places that they could sell that fiber. Yeah. And it's just, it doesn't make economic sense at the moment, but you know, um, maybe with some subsidy programs, uh, you know, more infrastructure around a fiber market, uh, maybe that will become a viable commodity for Illinois growers in the future. So I think just simply as far as the, um, the knowledge that we're gaining in terms of, you know, agricultural production, I think all of that's really useful. Um, so I don't, you know, maybe I would hear more critics if I was doing more research with high THC plants. Um, but that's really not, you know, as a weed ecologist, that's really not where, um, it, it doesn't make sense for my research to go there really. Yeah. Those high THC plants are grown in indoor cultivation or, you know, greenhouses at least. And they don't really have a lot of ecological interactions unless, you know, you're battling pests that have come in. So. Have you seen an increase in enrollment, uh, people coming in and saying, hey, you know, I'm interested in cannabis? Yeah. Well, I've definitely seen an increase in students that are contacting me with interest and they want to know more about the programs and what classes are offered. Um, we do have a certificate program. Right. Uh, so, so there's more interest in that. We've seen an increase in enrollment. Um, I don't know what it looks like for the fall as far as those cannabis students, mm -hmm. but it's, it's real. You know, there are more people that, um, you know, now realize that this is something that they can study and it can become a career yeah. just like anything else. And, you know, the great thing, it's, it's still a plant, right? You're learning about how to produce something. Yes. So that knowledge is transferable to any other production system. Right. So there's just, there's really so much you can do once you understand the basics. Mm-hmm. Which is something that like for me really demystifies it, or I don't mean to say for me, for, for others that maybe are not like pro cannabis, when you really break it down that it is just a plant. Like I explained to my mom once, like I was like, you know, the thing that, that makes like plants produce vegetation is the light cycle and, and you know, going into fall. That's why harvest is in the fall. The days get shorter. The plant starts to realize something is going on and it starts to produce, you know, it's vegetable, let's say. Um, I was like the same is the same is true of cannabis. And when I broke it down for when I had it broken down for me, even as somebody who's pro cannabis, I was like, that's all it is, is you just the sun just goes down earlier. Or in my case, you turn off the light earlier Cause like, that was crazy. It's like, how do I produce, how do I get this plant to produce flowers? Oh, just make sure that it's on a 12 hour light cycle. It's like, that's it. That's it. It thinks that it's fall and it goes into flower. And it's just fascinating when you break it down like that. And so I'm glad you broke that down because, uh, for folks that are looking to get into this program, first of all, like you said, it's something that you're still developing, uh, but I, I think we should set a realistic expectation for students. Um, it, it's, it's not like you're just going to sit down and study cannabis all the time. You will get an introduction to uh, agronomy kind of as a oh, yeah. high level, at a high level, right? That, that's right. That's right. So the certificate program is housed within our horticulture program. Yeah. So you have to take classes like crop physiology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not all about... Uh, I mean, there's this hard science, right? Um, so, um, you know, 
it's a it's a really interesting program though so that interest level you know I, I think it's very helpful when you think about students getting through the academic coursework if you're if you if there's something you like then yeah. it's easier and we do have um I, I don't know if you've spoken with him yet but we have a new cannabis biologist here at SIU now uh Dr. Jose Lime. I haven't yet but okay. we just connected recently Excellent. so we'll be talking soon yeah so we're building um you know curriculum Jose is building new classes and uh you know, he's starting his own lab. So there's a lot of potential here for students to come and, and learn about cannabis um, as a model plant. Yeah. Do you see any, do you see any students walk away from here and get into the professional cannabis industry or the legal cannabis industry? Have you seen that? Um, you know, it's still so early. Um, I figured it might be a little early for, for that. Cause I mean, you just yeah. started the program. The industry is very new in Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I do see, um, our undergraduate students going to work for the industry around us. So there are jobs just locally around us that they're more marketable for because they've had some experience studying cannabis in particular. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, those are those are jobs that um, you know they're really good entry level positions to give you experience, and then you can build on those as yeah. you decide what you want to do for your career. Um, but you know, really, if you think about anything in in crop production, um, you, you know, anything in marketing, like in any anything at all, right? You can apply it to uh, cannabis and cannabis production and mm -hmm. cannabis sales and. It's really a whole new area. Yeah, a whole new frontier. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's really cool. Um, do you have? Uh, I feel like I've seen in Jose's videos uh, fields of hemp. Do you guys have like a hemp field here at Southern Illinois? We University? do. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing the cultivar trial again this year. Um, and we have, uh, fields at Belleville, Illinois as well. Okay. So, so we, we do, we have, our research is a bit spread out, but, uh, this is the first year that, um, I have federal funding to study hemp and, uh, and we have a trial that's looking at weed management and, uh, the critical, um, critical period of competition that gotcha. causes a reduction in yield. Uh, so we are, you know, part of that study requires hand hoeing of the crop. Uh -huh. So, you know, there are certain days where we have a team out hoeing the hemp field. A lot of manual labor. Yeah, yeah. And one of our treatments has to stay weed free throughout the duration of the trial. So there are some plots we have to weed for the entire study. But, uh -huh. um, but some of them, you know, we only weed for a week and then we stop. And then you just let it go. Yeah. And then some of them we weed for two weeks or four weeks or six weeks and then we stop. Gotcha. So uh, with the idea being, you know, if you're limited in your ability to control the weeds, you know, if you only have to control them really well for two weeks and that's what it takes the hemp crop to establish and then start competing. I see. Yeah. So gotcha. it's, it's uh, and we have that trial, the... Um, where we are removing the weeds, but we also have another management trial mm -hmm. where we have uh, different planting densities and we have herbicide programs crossed with that. So we're looking at the interactive effects of those two things. And right now in, uh, in fiber or dual purpose hemp, there aren't labeled herbicides to use, mm -hmm. but um, just within the next year, we may see 
a couple of products that are labeled that may have limited uh, usefulness in our geography. They're not great for weed control, but you know we're also studying those. Gotcha. Do you guys uh, cultivate indoors at all? Uh, we have. My lab is uh, is kind of moving away from that. So, um, or Jose, uh, Dr. Lime is going to do more indoor cultivation. Okay. And uh, we're working on setting up a new indoor cultivation space. Cool. Uh, so, so I will still do some uh, basic uh, cannabis biology research in that space, uh, but for the most part, um, I'm gonna shift my focus, and I'm going to be primarily focused on row crops now, uh, more than the greenhouse production, indoor production, or specialty crop production, okay. like you know the black plastic with drip mm-hmm. line. I, I won't, my lab won't be doing as much of that in the future. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, what are some things that, uh, you hope for the future of cannabis research? I would imagine that being able to actually study cannabis itself would be nice. I know you are studying, we've made that point that you are studying cannabis, but right. like, let's do away with the arbitrary thresholds, which defined what is hemp and cannabis. I imagine that's a natural next step for you. It, that would be great, you know, um, or just even increase the threshold to 1%, right? Yeah. Because that, that is, it is an arbitrary threshold. But really at the end of the day, like I just think about all the different things that as researchers, you must not even you specifically, but just researchers in general, like they have access to like pharmaceutical grade cocaine and like, you know, like different (laughs) things. And it's like, it's gotta be a little bit of trust involved, you know? Sure. Yeah. And you know, I could, I could get, uh, even now I could get a DEA permit and, you know, study, you know, cannabis with higher THC thresholds than, than hemp. But, um, that comes with so much, Paperwork, kind of like and, I think the University of uh, Mississippi has done for all these oh, years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. gotcha. Um, yeah, so that's now open to more universities to do that. Yeah, but um, but again, you know, as a weed ecologist, I don't know if that sort of high THC production will ever be prevalent across the natural landscape, right? Because when you think about that, it's a medicinal crop. Yeah. And when you want to use something as medicine, you have to be sure that it's really, um, you know, unadulterated, right? No, you have to, you should, uh, you know, measure the, the microbes, you know, you don't want molds and, um, you know, any sort of chemical contamination, um, and growing it outdoors, you know, you'd probably get some pollen movement, you'd end up getting seeds. So those types of things, I think we will continue to see high THC, cannabis as an, an indoor or a controlled type, uh, crop. But, um, but yeah, it, it really would be great to see the regulations continue to, um, loosen. Yeah. And I don't know what I'm exactly shooting for. It just seems like, it just seems silly just because the plant could be psychoactive to have such a like a chokehold on the, the research. Cause like one of the things that Buck talked to, to me about, uh, is like in his experiments with hens that he, you know, giving CBD to a hen 
drastically cut down on their appetite, but then giving them Delta-8 THC, which is the only thing they could give because of these regulations we're talking about. All of a sudden, they have perked up attitude, much more lively. And I just wonder, like, again, that has a little bit more to do with psychoactivity, but I just wonder if there's something else that could be... It just seems like it's weird to have... So, it feels so arbitrary. Well, you know? it is. And, you know, there are a number of weed species that grow naturally out in the environment. If you really wanted to experience, you know, some sort of psychoactive effect, there are things that you could go find yeah. in the natural environment, you know? So it, it doesn't really make sense to regulate it so you know, so carefully, I mm -hmm. guess. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think we will, I hope we continue to see the, the federal re regulations loosen a bit until, you know, maybe <laughs> it'd be amazing to one day have, um, federal legalization. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, people have already made the, the point, but, uh, it's sad that, you know, when you look at cases like what's going on with Brittany Griner, it's like, oh, you know, she's, are you familiar with Brittany Griner, WNBA star that's currently oh, yes, locked up yes, yeah, in uh, yes. Russia because she apparently allegedly had a vape pen. Um, and it's like, I definitely agree she needs to be let go and everything. Um, it's just, it's sad that that same thing happens in Indiana. That same thing happens in Iowa. There are people from Illinois. The same thing happens in Illinois. People that exceed their possession limit, we've got that arbitrary limit now. Um, which it's like, it's better than nothing, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the fact absolutely. that we continue to criminalize people for simple possession of cannabis, it's like, it's troubling. It's troubling yes. in a state that's legalized cannabis, people continue to be in jail. And, and, you know, I feel bad for, uh, for Brittany Griner. Uh, I, I would hope that this, it seems like it's finally starting the conversation. Like I was at the gym the other day and I saw Brittany Griner and they're talking about cannabis on ESPN. And it's like, maybe, maybe this is what it might finally take for people to realize how foolish these policies are. Like, we're, we're locking up a young, talented athlete just because she had a pen that probably helped her, uh, you know, in downtime because being an athlete's tough on your body. It's just crazy. And uh, anyways, that's a tangent. Well, it, it, it is. It is crazy. But it's going to also take um, people like Dr. Hales to put the science yep. to the, the phytochemistry, right? Because um, I know... So many people that have been helped medicinally, um, but to actually put data, you know, to document the physiological response and yep. exactly how it's helping those people, you know, that's a whole nother level, right? When we have the science and when we, uh, when we have, you know, numbers on paper, I, I think we'll be able to shift the conversation even more. Okay. A couple more questions as we start to wrap up. Um, what do you think the future of, uh, cannabis research looks like? Uh, so we already kind of touched on maybe some of these arbitrary thresholds or, you know, limitations go away. Do you have any other hopes and dreams for the future? Or? Um, well, so one of the things that I have not worked with yet is a, um, a triple crop 
something that okay. could be grown for fiber, seed, and essential oils, cannabinoids or, or other oils. Um, you know, I, I know there are, there are a lot of challenges with that system, right? Because um, you have to optimize for one of those commodities and the ones you're not optimizing for, they're often lower quality and harder to sell, things like that. So, um, but just as a system, I think it's fascinating that you can get three different products from one crop right. potentially. Um, so that's something I would I would like to um, I would like to look at a little bit more, um, and I would like to think about the applications and where that could go in the future. I mean, because at that point, you know, if if uh, cannabinoids are a byproduct, you could you could use them in other things, right? They're lower quality, but maybe that changes the production game, right? Because it's not so expensive yeah. to buy can cannabinoids yeah. at that point. So it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought for sure. Um, totally, totally. Just because I, you know, I'm sitting down with you and I, you're a wealth of knowledge in a lot of these subjects. I, I'm just curious. What do we know about? I might be using the wrong word here, but hear me out. The ecology between plants and how plants communicate. Now hear me out. Uh, I've just, I'm under the understanding that like the plants can often communicate with like fungi and even like transfer energy among one another. Is there any, is any of this grounded? Like, is there oh. any proof to support? this yes yes there is some really neat science that supports the ability of plants to communicate i meant to say evidence to support that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no there there is you're exactly right um so plants form relationships with uh, mycorrhizal fungi underground and if you know if people don't know what those are if you go out into the forest and and dig up some soil you know take a shovel out and turn over some leaves and you see those uh, little white hair-like things growing through the leaves. That's um, that's fungi, basically. Um, that's the the mycorrhizae, and uh, you know, whenever you see a mushroom that's produced, uh, that's that could be that um, that fungus uh, sexually reproducing at that point. So the underground network of a single individual, a single fungus, uh, could be incredible. It could be you know your whole lawn, basically. And you may just see a couple of mushrooms, um, and that's how you know that that fungus is even there. But you don't see what's going on underground. So plants can um, can form relationships with mycorrhizal fungi, and for that entire network, um, that fungus can bring the plants uh, things like phosphorus, so it can bring a nutrient to the plants, and then in exchange, uh, the plant provides the, um, the fungus with carbohydrates. So it's a, it's a mutualism, a symbiosis. Many, in many cases, um, it can become pathogenic where the fungus can take more than it gives, you know? Um, so, so that's, you know, that's just a piece of what's happening below ground and plants, uh, can be connected by the same mycorrhizal fungus and there can be you know, some sharing of carbohydrates and reserves between those plants. Uh, so that's, that's work that has been done by other ecologists to show that uh, when it comes to the way that plants communicate with one another above ground, um, you know, plants can actually call for help in their own way. Um, you know, there was work done on, um, it's, uh, it's basically um, 
the wild tobacco plant. Um, you know, if, uh, if a caterpillar munches on that plant, um, the plant is able to release a volatile compound into the air, and it's called methyl jasminate. And, uh, and that compound can actually signal to uh, parasitoid wasps. And is that a pheromone? Is that what those are called? Um, it would be, it would, in plant terms, it would be a hormone. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, it's this volatile hormone uh, that's used in plant signaling. Um, so it can call in the predators of that uh, herbivore, but it can also alert other nearby individuals that that plant is being eaten. Those individuals start producing plant secondary compounds, those nasty compounds that deter herbivory, and they're already prepared, right? So when that caterpillar tries to move on to the next plant, it's less palatable. Look bitter. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That is really interesting. I so this is this gets pretty deep because it's like I might be wrong on the details, but from what I understand, I read somewhere online, so you know, who knows if it's true, but I read somewhere online that it, like going back to the 70s or 80s, people didn't really consider fish to be intelligent forms of life. They often actually so they kind of just they were like do you know, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that, um, with that idea. The idea being that um, their nervous systems are so much more reduced. Than yeah, ours. and a, a common myth, I think, uh, like when I, I grew up and uh, actually down around here and we'd fish and grandpa, does that hurt the fish? Oh, no, fish don't feel pain like that. It's like. You know, they probably do, <laughs> you know, but, um, I bring that up because, uh, it sounds like you're familiar with the idea that we, we've come to the understanding that fish are complex organisms and <laughs> I mean, uh, they are aware they have, uh, you know, hierarchies. It's interesting. We go to a pond nearby with, I think a bunch of koi fish and when you walk around the pond, the fish follow you because they know that humans equal food because there's a little like food thing that you can feed them with. I mean, they are aware. And so plants, it's interesting. We don't think of them as, uh, I mean, we think of them as living because they, they require water and, you know, they eat things, but we don't think of them as uh, complex organisms. But then when you hear that they have networks, we have networks, cellular networks, and they have networks to communicate with each other and get things that they need and tell each other about things that you might want to be yeah. <laughs> wary of. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Um, right. As a, as a weed scientist, one of my favorite things to study is um, allelopathy. And that's the idea that the plants can, in some ways, they have their own chemical warfare between mm. one another. So, and cannabis is allelopathic as far as our studies have shown. Really? Yeah. And when I say that, so to break that down a bit, um, so an allelopathic compound is just some sort of chemical that a plant produces that, um, that does something in its environment. Um, it can be positive, but normally when we talk about allelopathy, it's, it's negative to other plants. So it would, uh, it could, it, this compound could leach from their leaves when it rains. Um, it could only be released when the plant dies and starts breaking down. It could be exuded from the root system while the plant is living. So this is just something that the plants put into their environment that changes it. 
But some of these chemicals can uh, prevent the germination of, of other seeds around them, or uh, they can slow the growth of other plants around them, or uh, change the species of microbes in the rhizosphere <laughs> around them. So, so plants can put these things into the environment that change it. Now, whether or not it's a benefit to the plant that's produced that allelopathic compound, you know, maybe maybe it's not so much beneficial, but it's just something that's produced. Uh, but cannabis um, and and some cultivars produce more uh, compounds than others, as you would imagine. Um, could potentially be used uh, to suppress weeds in this way. And that was another study that we had done. We'd actually, uh, there's, a, there's a system in um, agronomic production called chaff lining, where like when you harvest a soybean crop, for example, you would harvest the soybean seeds and you would take the finest particles of that soybean plant and they would all be funneled into a small band behind the harvester. So you have this, this line of mulch behind the harvester. Well, not only is that a line of soybean particulate and mulch, uh, that's where all the weed seeds go that are harvested with the combine. So you put all the weed seeds in the place where they're going to have the hardest time germinating, basically. So we want to see if, you know, maybe we can use our dual purpose hemp in this chaff lining system. Uh, our greenhouse studies that have looked at just the, the residue, you know, the, the hemp biomass um, suggests that it, it would suppress the germination of a lot of our problem weeds. But now whether or not, you know, the weeds are tall enough when we harvest the hemp plants, you know, you have to harvest the seeds along with the hemp seeds and, you know, um, get enough residue off of the um the hemp seeds too, that you'd create that line of mulch. Yeah. So, so allelopathy is just a, is a really cool um, thing that plants do again, that affects their environment. Another way that, that they can change things around them. Because if you think about, you know, the difference between plants and animals, you know, plants have to experience everything in one location. So they have to have all the tools to adapt to the environment just inherent within them because they can't, run away. Um, so, so yeah, they're doing all kinds of things ecologically that we're just not aware of. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's just, it's just interesting because when you look at a plant, oftentimes people just like think like, ah, it's just a plant. Like it's just sitting there. But then when you watch a time lapse of the plant, the plant's like going doing all that weird stuff. You're (laughs) like, wow, it is like, it's got a life. It's like aware of its surroundings. And it's, it it really makes you wonder like, this is really deep, but like, what is life? Because, you know, you, you start to get down or what is intelligent life, you know, because you start to get down to these things. I mean, a plant I feel like is the best example. Like we started a fish and it's like, you could see how you'd think a fish is stupid in some ways, (laughs) you know, but, uh, a plant, like you say, it can't run away. So you kick it and it's like, Oh, this thing's stupid. It can't even run away from me. How useless. But it's like, it's it's doing things that we couldn't even comprehend. You know what I mean? It couldn't, well, we couldn't even physically do. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah, we have no way. Yeah. No way to even sense what the plant is doing unless, you know, we take some pretty advanced equipment and measure the volatile compounds that are being released from it. And yeah, there are a lot of things that we just have 
as, as humans, no capacity to perceive. So to close, what do you think about the, you know, we kind of started with the idea that cannabis, uh, the scheduling of it is, is it inhibits researchers ability to make any factual statements about the, <laughs> the plant. What do you think about other, uh, you know, natural plants and fungi that we've chosen to criminalize as a society, for example, psilocybin mushrooms. Do you think there's potential there? Well, you know, um, I, I do believe there are also clinical trials right now to look at, um, micro doses to treat things like anxiety and depression, maybe, maybe yeah. just depression. So yeah, you know, um, again, it, I think it comes back to the, the dose makes of the poison, right? I could, um, I could drink enough coffee to kill myself. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, so in that sense, you know, should we, uh, make coffee illegal? Right. You know? Um, so it becomes a personal choice, right? And yeah. what, death what, can find its way into anything is, uh, to loosely quote, uh, Hamilton Morris, you know, people die on the toilet, people die, uh, you know, uh, doing a matter of things, having sex. Uh, does that mean that, you know, people shouldn't be able to have sex anymore because some people died, you know, like it's a slippery slope, you know? So, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Like as Americans, uh, also to loosely quote Hamilton Morris, he's got a, he's awesome. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Hamilton Morris, uh, now off to point in the direction of some of his material. Um, but he said, you know, as, as, Americans, just as people living in a free society, it doesn't even have to be about America. Um, you have the right to engage in certain risks. Like we have the right to drive cars. You want to take it up a level? We have a right to drive motorcycles. You know, um, we can purchase bleach, fuel, poison, uh, rat poison. And it's assumed though that any adult that engages in these risks are aware of that and are able to you know, proceed accordingly. And it's just weird how we've got a lot of this, this legislation to regulate behavior. Yeah. And it's funny because the, the substances we're regulating, you know, cannabis and psilocybin, um, I can't really imagine that those things would, I mean, if you look at all the other substances that are abused and any potential dangerous behavior that comes from them, like, you know, it's just such a, a low threat, right? Yeah. You know, don't get in a car and drive that type of thing. You know, don't put yourself in a position where you could hurt anybody, but to, to regulate it, it just, it, it doesn't make sense at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just to, to, to regulate it with the, uh, the consequence of arrest, like, it's just like, you know, you, if you want to make the argument that using cannabis or dosing mushrooms is unhealthy, I could also make the argument that locking somebody in a cage is unhealthy. You know, like, is that the appropriate response? You know, so. well, you know, you have to think, too, if we if we isolate, you know, one of the active compounds and then produce a pill and market it you know, that's going to be treated completely different than a, <laughs> yeah. a natural plant, you know, in its whole plant form. Um, so it'll something. have a pretty label on it and a commercial where people are smiling and saying, ask your doctor for it'll be regulated and prescribed. And yeah. 
Well, uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Um, is there anything that we didn't touch on today that you feel is important? I really tried to drill home and I'll do it one more time. Cannabiscenter.siu.edu for students that are looking to uh, you know, work alongside you and other folks like Doc, Dr. Buck Hales. Um, anything else that you feel uh, we should mention on our way out of here? Oh, no, just, well, just about the Cannabis Science Center, you know, it really is about partnerships and it just helps connect all the researchers at SIU that have an interest in studying cannabis. And then it gives us a platform to connect with all of the external partners that want to support SIU and its efforts. Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot of synergy there and, uh, and yeah, we're always looking for new ways to support students. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, with that said, uh, folks, I hope you found value in this episode of the Chillinoy podcast. Carl, I'd love to sit back down with you again in the future because, uh, you know, this is just the beginning. This is the beginning of a long road uh, towards uh, understanding the cannabis plant. And I am so excited that we have folks uh, like you and, and others that you've mentioned uh, that are leading the charge in doing this. Um, you know, that's, I'm glad to hear that you've not faced any like in your face criticism. What I had asked about earlier, I was kind of wondering if people would come in like, how dare you, uh, you know, that type of thing, bring this into our schools. Uh, but it's nice to hear that you, that you haven't. Um, but I would imagine that it was something that was on your mind. Like there's a heavy stigma with cannabis. So I would, I would imagine like, no, I don't no, Not really. No, no, I think the 2014 farm bill just kind of erased that in my mind. Yeah. You know, if it's okay for agriculture, then, you know, it, it, at that point, I think it became mainstream for me. Really. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, I recognize the stigma is still there, but I, um, it, it feels like we're moving beyond it. Maybe it's just because I study cannabis and read about cannabis all the time. But yeah. Well, and I suppose to your point when it starts popping up in family video and every, <laughs> I mean, that's what happened when this, what you're talking about happened, it just started yeah. popping up everywhere and everybody's pretty well. Okay. with CBD, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, I could see how that would make it all digestible, but yeah, no, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't hesitant because of any stigma, I guess. Good. It was really just the hoops that you have to jump through right there's still licensing and yeah you know paperwork to do to get the research done so um so those are the really the only remaining hurdles yeah in my opinion well i'd like to thank you for doing what you can to ad advance to advance the cause if you couldn't tell the topics we started off with are very important to me making sure that this is grounded in science that there are evidence to support our claims and uh you're doing so much uh, to further that. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to be here.